I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Dan Headed One. Okay, so welcome to the podcast, Dan. Um, now, you are an environmental researcher. Um, what is that to you? What does that mean? Well, uh, hi, Daniel. It's good to be here. Um, an environmental researcher, to me, tries to capture a lot of the different um, broader skill sets that we don't necessarily feel live in a single kind of um, domain. Um, I'm very much an interdisciplinary researcher. So my background comes from uh, a real passion for geography and understanding our environment and how we as humans, we as a society, uh, operate within that space. Um, as you know, the environment isn't just one kind of discipline. You need, to, uh, you need to have some grounding and some understanding and appreciation of the different systems that that make up our environment. And they're not just all hydrological or atmospheric, they're also multi-layered and, and anthropogenic and, and societal and, and, and often what gets neglected in our field of, of whether you wanna call it geoscience or atmospheric sciences or, or climate change studies is the economics of it too. And um, as an environmental researcher, I, try and plant my flag somewhere in the middle of all of them and try and get the people around to appreciate those different types of perspectives and, and disciplines that can allow us to begin to tackle these complex and tricky problems which we all live in and we live through, like uh, climate change or environmental degradation. So you basically live at the centre of a really complex Venn diagram. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I am uh, I am interdisciplinary and I'm intersectional too, and and uh, and by that I mean I'm uh, and we'll get into this probably later. I'm a, a mixed race. I'm I'm gay. I'm I come from a very uh, uneducated and poor kind of background to immigrant parents, and um, all of who I am kind of really captures uh, my and reflects itself very well in my kind of uh, environmental researcher role. And um, the exciting thing is that this space is becoming more and more inhabited by more and more researchers with different skills. And uh, it's becoming quite fun and a bit of a party here in this intersection, which is great. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, I'm curious, how did you get into this? What, what did you study? Um, where did you go to school? So um, I'm from London, uh, UK, um, and I grew up in a very diverse community in London, so central London. Um, I grew up on uh, a council estate in South London and it's similar to kind of like a social housing or the projects which some of us might be familiar with from like the States and the Supremes, you know, who, how can you forget that? Um, and one thing that was always apparent is the difference that I was compared to everyone else in my family because at times we were um, exposed to a lot of um, ignorance and discrimination. And uh, the one thing that kind of uh, 
I was brought up with was the fact that actually we're all the same. We're all equal. And yeah, we do look different and we might have different cultural practices or, you know, at Christmas, I, we would have a roast chicken, which is halal rather than like a turkey or a goose. And um, when you interact with others, you begin to realize the differences that make you you and make others others or them them. And um, always knowing that we are all human, I wanted to understand, well, why are we different? And why, why do my family in Italy, in Morocco, where my parents come from, you know, how, what's the story there? And so that led me to being more interested in the natural environment, into what makes culture's culture and, and environment's the environment. And that led into kind of this way of, oh, the weather and climate, well, that's quite interesting. Oh, you know, different habitats and ecosystems, oh, that's quite interesting. You know, different cultures adapt to where they are. And uh, that's how we have a beautiful diversity in, in, in humanity that we have and celebrate today. Um, so that was the main driving force for going into environmental research. The idea that we're all equal and there are things that make us different. And if we understand what makes us different, we fundamentally understand what makes us the same. And, um, and so that's how I, from a little, a little queer boy in, in, in a city, London, um, developed that kind of real intrigue and curiosity in, in geography and the environment. And that led me through to pursuing that at university and, and beyond. I love that understanding that like nature and people are not uh, divorced as we often think of them, um, but they both intimately impact each other. <laughs> exactly. And we get sometimes so caught up on our differences, we forget actually what makes us the same. And um that's global. That's uh, that's that transcends time and space, and that's essentially what geography is. It's there's those measuring those patterns in time and space, and and um, as you see, and as you probably are familiar, and all of the listeners are too, that there are different ways you can investigate those differences and and understand those patterns and use the different tools we've developed over time and from different kind of cultures to investigate and interrogate these truths, and. Um, yeah. And so I just wanted to be part of that. Great. I'm glad you are. <laughs> what did you study in school? So at undergraduate, I did physical geography. Um, okay. I always knew I wanted to go into this space, but I didn't know what kind of space I'd inhabit. And growing up in the 90s and early 2000s, global warming and environmental degradation was much more of a, a bigger kind of topic in the news. Um, it makes you think we've known about these things for decades and uh, we're still finally, if not finally, beginning to act upon them now. But um, I knew I, that part of the discourse, that part of the field really interested me because any problems that we have today in terms of our environment, how we operate in them, that's going to be exacerbated by a shifting baseline, by changing climates, by um, different events, whether they are extreme or more moderate, impacting how we live and operate in those spaces. And so I really began to go down that route through my undergraduate kind of path. But um, I'm quite a bit of a doer. I don't like to just sit back and learn. I like to get my hands dirty. And so understanding about climate change and, and the impacts that it will have on our environment and our 
society, I ended up going down more of a, all right, well, how can we stop this? Or how can we mitigate this? Renewable power. And so I threw all my eggs into that basket of, do you know what? I want to be on the front line. I want to be trying to be part of the solution. So I, I wanted to specialize in renewable power and understand that. And uh, that's where my path led me. <laughs> Wonderful. And, and what are you studying now? So once I knew I wanted to go into renewable power and that field, I didn't really know what to do because my parents and no one in my family kind of went to university. And I, I've already had surpassed any expectation I had by completing an undergraduate degree. And, but I knew it was really tough going into renewable power. And this is back 10 years ago. So um, it was still, people were still much more skeptical about it than, than they were now. Um, it's actually really encouraging to see loads of people love wind turbines and solar panels these days. Um, but back then it was still kind of like a, a weird art form or a dark art, you know? Um, but I didn't really know what I was, I didn't really know how to get in. So I did what anyone did, would want to do. And after I did my undergraduate thesis in kind of solar power, I wanted, I used that as the kind of ticket into pushing at a door of other opportunities uh, with a master's program at Imperial College London. And it was an environmental technology master's program and I specialized in energy policy. And I thought, I'm not an engineer and I'm, you know, I feel like I'm an imposter when it comes to the real hardcore sciences and atmospheric sciences and some of the stuff people do with white, white, white jackets on them. But I felt that my value and my skill set would be in kind of uh, marrying the environmental knowledge that I developed on my undergraduate and the passion that I have with uh, a nuanced perspective in energy policy and trying to, you know, there's an environmental problem. We have some solutions, but it's not really working. So maybe that's the critical gap. Maybe understanding our world isn't really the problem. Maybe actually doing something about it is. So long story short, masters, did it, best year of my life, loved it. I'd encourage anyone to do a master's um, because you meet people and you're paying to meet people who love the things you love and are interested in developing the skills you'd like to develop. Um, and it was a really diverse cohort of people from all different backgrounds. Um, again, re-entrenching the idea that you don't have to be a physicist or a, a hardcore chemist or, a, or these things I don't really think really exist. They're all kind of impressions where we're taught and conditioned to have. Um, and that led me to having a master's that I can say, hey, look, I've got these skills um, and I want to add value to your company somehow. And I then went up to Inverness to work in sustainability for a government agency. So Inverness is in the highlands of Scotland. It's right by Loch Ness. And, and when I went up for my interview, I, I cycled frantically during the winter to to try and spot Nessie, but uh, instead I just got a beautiful view of the Highlands and I'd highly recommend it once the world opens up. Um, so I lived in Inverness for a year, worked up for sustainable kind of low carbon asset management and then went into energy consulting back down in London. So I went back home um, 
did sustainability and energy consulting. And afterwards, I started my PhD in Imperial College London, which led me to looking more deeper into the connections between climate change and renewable power. And can are there any solutions or, or what might happen? And is it actually even possible to link up the outputs from climate models through to power systems models and spit out an interesting metric that decision makers can interpret and try and understand and so throughout my kind of modest you know six years or whatever career i went through the mill of understanding the different kind of disciplines as best as i could to enable me to have a good understanding of how to approach this problem with an interdisciplinary skill set wonderful I have to admit, um, when I started university myself, I was confounded by the different degree types, um, the difference between an undergrad versus a master's and a PhD. So, um, I yeah, I know that confusion, and um, and I know that imposter syndrome is rampant through academia. Some of my the, the most impressive people I know have it as well. Um, in the museum, we've actually got an elasmosaur skeleton. So, next time you're in Vancouver, I will show it to you, and you can say you've seen Nessie. <laughs> Nice. I'd love to come to. Uh, I lo- I, yeah, I have so much love for, for Canada and I'd love to visit Vancouver. So I'm going to take you up on that, Daniel. Wonderful. Uh, I'm curious, how is um, climate change affecting power generation? Uh, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Um, it's interesting because depending on who you speak to, you'll get slightly different answers. And one of the challenges in our in, in an interdisciplinary field is, and this is why I, I'm giving you a long answer to that question, is that different <laughs> different um, disciplines and experts are more cognizant of different kind of limitations of this research. So, uh, from a climate cha- or from a climate scientist perspective, some of the these outputs from GCMs, for instance. Uh, uh, the CMIP-5 uh, experiments that were used to inform the IPCC or the Interpanel Government, uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, um, their assessments of climate change, and these are like the world gold standard on um, comprehensive uh, climate change studies. Um, these models were never intended to be used in the way I'm using them. So um, we can say that from the assessments I've been doing with the models I'm using, caveat, 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 that um, baseline changes into the mid-century may uh, impact the output of wind turbines by 5% plus or minus, um, which is comparable in certain extents to the natural variability currently of those sites. so the idea is the weather and the climate is never static. It's, it's dynamic. So it's always changing. I'm going to probably get a lot of hate mail from a lot of atmospheric scientists here. But um, the idea is how can you reduce that complexity and the variability into a number that people can work with? Because at the end of the day, it's sadly not the climate scientists who make decisions on where to put a wind farm. It's a business person. And um, you need to communicate to them the risks involved in investing in a turbine or a solar panel somewhere and provided the evidence shows that it's a net positive investment they are very happy to spend their money um and so to answer your previous the the original question um how does it change 
Well, from the results I've seen so far, we're looking at probably under, under moderate climate change. That's like, well, under small climate change, RCP 2.6 of the, uh, of the kind of climate, change, climate forcing scenarios, we're looking at maybe 1% to 2% increase to decrease of capacity factors. And the capacity factor is just the ratio of, of power that a turbine or a panel could produce over its theoretical maximum. So... Oh, this is a this is a very convoluted way of explaining this. So we probably will edit this out. But in short, we're looking at um, energy power output may increase or decrease between two percent under small climate change, and it may increase or decrease under more pronounced and extreme climate change. So that would be RCP eight point five of the uh, CMIP five scenarios oh am i losing you is this too many acronyms because uh <laughs> this is a it's a it's a pain it really is <laughs> so the, the greater the climate change uh the greater uh, change in power generation will have so what my, my what i can i can say hand on heart <laughs> what i can say hand on heart from my research is the more extreme forcing we have from climate change the, the greater the change in uh, renewable potentials that we will be experiencing in the future. This change is greater the longer term into the future we go. Um, and how this translates as cost, it might be a 2% increase or decrease in cost depending on the location under small to moderate climate change. That would be defined as RCP 2.6 or 4.5 of the IFPCC's uh, scenarios, or maybe between 5% of, you would see an increase or decrease of cost within 5% under more extreme climate change. So that would be RCP 6.0 or 8.5. Um, again, so the more the climate change, the greater the volatility or the risk in these costs changing. And that's really important for investment because if something is stable and confident, people will invest in it. That's why government bonds are really easy to, that's why people went on about the, the economic crisis and people were still buying like Greek bonds or Italian bonds. And it's like, well, because they know governments will pay them back. Whereas in the renewable power, you even though the wind might not blow all the time and the sun might not shine all the time, there is still going to be power generation. And how we can... Uh, appraise the risks of that power generation changing into the future that allows us to mitigate those economic risks and it provides decision makers with much a much clearer understanding of what might happen to their investment in the future we all praise or value stability <laughs> you mentioned that you are uh, you um, had a dalliance with private industry for a while but now you're back in in academia doing your phd um I, I have noticed that most careers are very circuitous. Um, and uh, I mean, my own career has been that way. A lot of people, um, sometimes you get turned back. Sometimes, um, oh, well, for some people, they're like a rocket. They go in one direction and um, they never look back. Uh, do you think that your career has been circuitous or have you had any setbacks? Oh, every day is a setback. I've learned from other people's careers. I've learned from other people's lived experiences in their lives. 
I think there's a lot of value in sharing and talking honestly about what we've gone through. I didn't have a path growing up. I didn't have a, a really defined idea of what I wanted to be. That's, been, that's worked in my advantage and my disadvantage. I, it's been harder for me to understand when there's a dead end. Um, and it's been harder for me to understand if I'm valuing myself appropriately. But it's enabled me to just go with it. I, I had no expectations growing up of where I would be. I just wanted to be successful and I wanted to be able to provide for my family. And they always said, just follow your passions and what you love doing, Dan. And so that led me to going down this route of the environmental research path. I knew that to be able to tackle these difficult problems, I needed more skills. And so once I realized it was really difficult to get into the industry, I focused more on how can I get the skills to enable me to enter that industry better. Um, and so that led me to a different approach to take. So rather than focusing on the role, I was more interested in what responsibilities could I learn and apply them in my career. So I've been rejected by universities in the past. I've been rejected by for jobs. Um, I've had paper rejections a few times during my PhD. But the important thing is to understand how, like, what didn't go to plan and how can you ensure that doesn't repeat itself? Um, so that's led me to now during the end of my PhD, which I'm, I'm seven weeks to submit in. So it's very interesting right now, very intense time. Um, I also work a full-time job. Don't ask me how I do it. Um, I do it badly. No, um, I am working for a renewable power company at the moment too. So I am, very much applying everything I've learned and I've kind of achieved. I got quite emotional when I got the job because I was like, oh, I've, I've done what I wanted to do. I'm now working in renewable power. It's great. Um, and no one in my family has ever been in this position before. So, um, or my community and, uh, it's really heartening and it, it inspires me to keep on going and, and lift up people at the same time. So, so yeah, so that, so my, my path is not traditional. Uh, I don't think any of us really have a traditional path. Um, but if your compass is strong and wise, um, it will not lead you astray. Just don't be afraid to ask for help along the way. You said earlier that you're not an engineer, but that really does sound like an engineer's mindset. You identified the, the situation, uh, identified your resources and what you needed to accomplish your goals, and then you went out and got those, those skills. So I, I think you qualify as a, an engineer <laughs> that's the worst thing anyone has ever said to me daniel no um <laughs> i uh, I'm, I'm yeah i think we're all part engineer we're all part phys natural scientist and um i'm i think thank you that's a i appreciate that that it's great hi all the engineers out there too <laughs> <laughs> in your work um have you made any discoveries or major accomplishments that you'd care to share i think the on a so Personally, to my research and work, I've, other than the appalling way of describing what my research has found earlier, um, so the, I, I guess the key take-homes are the impact of climate change on the economics of solar and wind power is not 
projected to detrimentally impact their rollout or deployment into the future. So to unpack that statement in a more layperson way would be to say, actually, we've looked at the numbers and wind turbines will continue to work and they'll continue to make money and revenue. Um, again, we might care more about them working, but sadly, investors and stakeholders care more about them making money. And the same is true for solar panels. So, so in the future, these things will still continue to work. They will be quite an effective means of mitigating climate change through low carbon power generation, but they will also be a good way of adapting to the future as well. That goes against the conventional wisdom that, or the, the conventional uh, perception that uh, renewable energy is unreliable. Um, so that's, you, you know, like you said, um, sometimes the wind doesn't blow and people think that um, wind, wind turbines aren't reliable, but uh, that's great to hear that they ultimately in the long run are way more reliable. Yeah, and the, 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 the critical thing with understanding um, with this kind of interdisciplinary research is the fact that people have been working on these problems across different fields for eternity. Um, we've known that the wind isn't always reliable. That's why you move from maybe windmills in certain reason, regions to oxes and, and horses and, and you know, uh, horsepower. That's literally where it comes from. Um, but we, by marrying up and coupling the understanding of different disciplines, and in particular, again, these technological solutions can, can expose ourselves to greater atmospheric variability, for example, in our power system. So more the greater penetration of wind and solar on our power system means that we are more susceptible to potentially storms or uh, cloudy days, as basically as that. But there are kind of mechanisms in power system modeling and, and research, as well as in the economic world, which allow us to smooth out those peaks and troughs. So even though the winds might not always blow above a certain threshold, it doesn't mean that's a sunk investment. And it doesn't mean that it won't be an opportunity to generate more power in the future. If we continually to think in a kind of one discipline mindset, and that's basically for the old argument of wind and solar, it's the wind isn't always blowing, the sun isn't always shining. But yeah, you know, you don't always get your power from one place. The grid is there mm -hmm. to distribute and, and share the power and transmit it from different sources to enable a constant supply and, and flow of, of power. And we now have an even more complex layer of, uh, of financial and uh, business structures over that in terms of a market, especially in the UK and some parts of uh, North America too, where they try and, again, smooth out the funding of those investments because you can't just expect uh, something to work as, as planned before. You need to develop strategies to mitigate the risk of it fading. And that includes... Um, having different, what I work in now, power purchase agreements to ensure that generators aren't, aren't, um, aren't left high and dry when the power's not being generated. And they have a confident stream of revenue. And that comes from liaising with all stakeholders in, in, in the system. So it's, yeah, it's a very complex situation, but there are solutions. You just have to trust that there are the right people in the right places. And if not, just work with them and collaborate. You'll be able to, uh, yeah, 
bridge the gap. We always talk about the value of, of diversity in teams, but it's um, impressive how you um, make a good case for economic diversity and um, financial diversity and intellectual diversity as well, um, different streams. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think it's easy to let our, our own experience of what solutions exist to impede our openness to understanding them. Um, especially with the markets and the economic side of, say, investments and business cases, because we all as individuals in our own personal lives have probably been burnt somehow by a poor financial decision or or someone who we perceive to be making money off us or even just on even a more topical level, a terrible power company charging us extortionate amounts for these things. But to just complain and just think negatively and let that lead your decision making into the future is inherently not science based and it's inherently not evidence based. Um, we have a system which is imperfect, but to just critique it is not daring greatly. To really dare greatly, you have to get your hands dirty and understand what's going on and try and propose a better solution. And it also means being in a room, sometimes very uncomfortably, with people you assume to be the devil and get them to understand that there are cheaper and more sustainable ways of doing things. And to ensure that we are all kind of on the same page and we all can benefit from this quality of life, we need to compromise. And uh, the only way to really do that is by understanding people and different disciplines more. And uh, yeah, so that's where I'll stop talking. <laughs> No, that's a really mature response and good advice, no matter what the the, the situation. Um, yeah, we always need compromise and uh, criticism without a solution is just uh, screaming in the wind. <laughs> yeah, literally, like literally screaming in the wind. People don't want wind turbines because they're ugly. And, and it's like, why? Because nuclear power is beautiful and a coal fire power station is is just stunning to look at. It's We, get, we let our unconscious biases inform our how we operate in the world and it's challenging but just accepting who we are and and letting our personality not not suppressing that enables us to see a bit more clearly about our own kind of ideas and perspectives and hopefully allows us to understand each other a bit better one of my um favorite things with this interview series has been hearing about people's field work. Um, I'm not a scientist, and so I've never actually gone out into the field, but apparently it's this magical place where crazy stuff happens all the time. I'm curious, do you get out into the field very often? I've heard about this uh, illustrious field as well. It's, uh, I've heard it's got unicorns and cherry trees. And um, I, I'm not a field scientist. I, I consider, I was thinking about this and I've listened to a few of your predecessors on the, on the podcast and it's really interesting to see how and what they feel as the field too. Um, I feel like for me as a primarily a modeler and probably a, a more of an analyst of data, the field might be, I program in the language R. Um, that's quite a, that's quite a niche field, but it's a growing one, which is quite cool. Um, Loads of websites with data stores. That's probably my field. It's not very interesting. Um, but I have been able to, from an interdisciplinary perspective, interact with others in a very in an incredible way and in a very real world way. Because uh, climate change is very, you know, 
very real. It's very tacit. You can touch, you can, you can feel how it's impacting people's lives more so now than before. Um, so I got to go to COP22 in Marrakesh, which was in 2016. So COP is the conference of the parties. So that's the primary international negotiating kind of uh, venue or, or, or room in which the world comes together to discuss what we're going to do about climate change. And every year they have a conference and they try and agree and on certain uh, policies or targets or funding mechanisms. It's literally a forum for everyone to try and agree to do things about climate change. And 2016, it was in Morocco and it's at the end of the year. And that year it coincided with the American election. And that was the year uh, Donald Trump won the American presidency. And it was very interesting because the two different parties that were vying for the presidency had very two different manifestos, especially when it comes to climate change and the environment. And at this international forum, it were the day after, well, during the forum, it, President Trump won. And it was interesting to see how people reacted and responded to that because one of the the world, if not one of the world's largest emitters, had suddenly decided to say, hey, let's go back into much more um, fossil fuel positive or pro-territory. And so that took the wind out, out of everyone's wings a lot. And um, so that's an interesting field story. But uh, another one is they all know how to party. <laughs> We didn't let that stop our enjoyment of the of the conference. Uh, it may have set back the world a few years, but uh, in terms of climate policy, but we we didn't let that stop our good time. That's good. I can imagine that um, that could have gone the other way completely, where it would have been a disastrous mood. Well, make the you have to make the best of any opportunity you're given, and so. Uh, when else are you going to be in Morocco and have the world's uh, climate experts all together rubbing shoulders? It's, it's it was beautiful. Did you happen to meet the Canadian delegation? No, I didn't get to. Um, they all had their own stands. And I think Canada's one was really good. I forget where it was, but um, they had some really good talks, especially around the indigenous population in Canada and how certain Arctic communities were more exposed to certain aspects of environmental degradation. And they are great platforms to highlighting the stories of um, communities that have been historically underrepresented. That's great to hear. I'm glad to hear that uh, Canada's doing that. <laughs> now, you clearly love your work. Um, what's your favorite aspect of it? The favorite part is being able to share with others the findings that I've been fortunate enough to uncover and discover with others. So a mantra I follow by is each one teach one. And that's when as soon as you learn something, you try and repurpose it for someone else in terms of value to others. So in terms of coding, for instance, I, I didn't know how to code before I started the PhD. But as soon as I found some things that were helpful to me, I tried to share them with others or at least get other people to think about how they might want to code in their thesis. Um, and you collaborate and you work and then you develop beautiful friendships and you grow your family. And, and so that's, that's one thing that excites me about wherever I go and whatever I do. It's, it's the people you interact with and, and the creation of, of value that you can have with them. You put a positive spin on everything, which is wonderful. Uh, 
but I mean, we all have uh, cloudy days in, and days when we just don't want to go to work. Um, what's the, the, what causes you uh, stress in your work or what's the worst aspect of your work? I think the flip side of what I find beautiful. So uh, challenging individuals who, who, who don't, or, there, or conflict that emerges between understanding and the kind of uh, entrenchment and dogmatism that I think kind of pervasively exists in academia, wherever you are. It's easy to just put your feet down and say, no, you know, I'm right. I know this. I'm the expert. And again, there are loads of unconscious biases that kind of uh, exist in all of our minds. I'm guilty of that as well. Um, and that can really drag down your own kind of energy and the effort you can apply into your work. So as someone who has had to really fight hard to get to the same level playing field to be able to do research and to be involved in academia, to, to be in renewable power, um, the real challenges come from always with, from other people maybe trying to put you back into that place that you fought so hard to get out of. Um, and yeah, it's challenging, but you have to, you can't give up. You have to keep on going. Um, and there's some of the challenges I and other people I know face. It's not, oh, I, coding is difficult. I mean, coding is, is learnable. It's a tractable problem to a certain extent, but um, having belonging and feeling and getting rid of that imposter syndrome and, and feeling part of, of the community and, and being able to shine your light without anyone trying to dim it, that's been, that's quite challenging. And that requires a lot of energy and effort. And I believe that's probably why our kind of, uh, our, our fields, our kind of um, subject area, our disciplines have tended not to be as diverse or as, or feel as inclusive or, or be as equitable as, as others. And it's because you face that challenge as well as, being yourself. And um, yeah, so those are the days when I feel down is when uh, I can't be me. Yeah, that, that is something that uh, academia struggles with sometimes. You have all these people who are so brilliant in their fields, um, but they also feel like they're uh, experts at everything. Um, and they, we all always have to remember that we're experts in our fields, um, but there's still so much more for us to learn. Um, You're talking about how the field um, has struggled to be more open and inclusive. Do you feel like, were you talking about academia in, in general or the field of uh, climate science? I think more academia in general. It also exists in climate science too. Um, I know a previous uh, speaker, Craig Poku, was, who was on this podcast, um, he was incredibly great at, putting more of a sharing his own experiences, Craig's own experiences of, of, of this. And, um, I, I'd, I'd, I'd advise anyone to defer back to what Craig said too. Um, but it's, it's difficult because to really succeed in academia, there is a fundamental kind of platform you need to be on. And if you come from a home where you have instability, if you come from a place where 
you are more likely to receive kind of uh, discrimination or be treated differently, whether it's because of your race, gender, sexuality, physical or mental ability and impairment, or any other characteristic that has been historically underrepresented, um, it's harder to meet and attain the same level that your peers who haven't faced such challenges uh, may may reach. And so that, that's when that's when we talk more about the systematic challenges in our field. And that's why we try and shift the focus more onto equity and how can we help those who have um, experienced uh, adversity or, 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 or difficulty? How can we help them achieve those similar levels uh, without massive personal suffering or, 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 or challenge? And, um, and so that has led, in my opinion, um, and my lived experience to fewer or, 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 or a perception of it being less inclusive. So I don't think anyone or there are some bad eggs and uh, it's probably more due to ego and, <laughs> and, a, and a very sensitive attitude to being critiqued rather than an extreme uh, desire to put people down because of who they are. Um, but that kind of typifies, from my perspective, some of the challenges we face in, in academia, not just in, in climate science, um, but elsewhere. If you want to be the best, you need a lot of resources. It takes a, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. And when you are nowhere near the village you should be in, it's going to be tough trying to raise that child and even tougher to raise an academic. That's such a wonderful uh, explanation of why, um, of, of the invisible barriers that so many people face. Um, that's, yeah, I couldn't say it better myself. <laughs> Do you happen to belong to any of these uh, communities of uh, underrepresented uh, populations in, in academia? Yes, so I am uh, mixed race. I'm I'm half Italian, and my mum was uh, my mum is Roman Catholic, so I come from like a Catholic Italian household. My dad was uh, Moroccan, and he's Muslim, and he's also Amazigh, which is like the indigenous population of Morocco. So you might have heard of the Berbers. So that's the, the kind of group that were there. So I come from a very diverse kind of ethnic background, but I was born and raised in London, UK. So super, super niche kind of uh, stock there. Um, we grew, my parents didn't have much education and um, we grew up quite uh, poor on support, on welfare support from the government. Um, and I'm also gay. I'm a gay cisgendered man. Um, and so these kind of identities I have, have really shaped the kind of, uh, experiences that I've, and the challenges I've, I've had to kind of, uh, overcome and still kind of struggle through to, uh, to be able to contribute academically and contribute professionally too. Uh, have you felt like you've been treated differently because of that or, or have people been, um, more accepting? I think... It's hard to say. You can't ever really inhabit anyone else's mind. My uh, my uncle always says, uh, he says it in Italian, but I'm not going to butcher my Italian here. He says, um, every person has their own head and inside that head is a little world. And uh, if you're a modeler in any kind of sense, you know how difficult and it is to model even the climate system 
and the kind of power you need computationally and understanding to kind of replicate even a nth percentage of the world. The same is true for the human mind. Um, it's very complex and we can try and try and try to understand and dissect it. So I'm not in the game to label people as racists or bigots or, or homophobes or transphobes, but I am in the game to try and enable them to see the human in me. And I try and do that by being who I am. Um, I'm not afraid to be vulnerable. And uh, coupled with my imposter syndrome, it's a very uh, difficult, uh, <laughs> it's a very difficult kind of tightrope to walk. But um, it means that you give opportunities to people to, to interact and engage with you constructively. And some people take it and other people don't. And I'm not going to pay any mind to the people that don't because I've got more important things to do with the, the breath in my lungs and, and the, the life in my body. So, um, so yeah, I've faced challenges. Who knows why I faced them, but uh, I see my peers not face them and um, I'm just going to prove them wrong. <laughs> And I think you are. And I, I may have to borrow that phrase from your uncle, uh, that we all have a world in our own heads. <laughs> That's excellent. Yeah. It's just like the penny drops and you're like, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. No one can see my world and I can't see theirs. Mm -hmm. All I can do is try and communicate it and express it in, a, in an authentic way as possible. And if people reject it, then... That's not my problem. I can't change their mind. That's not my job. My existence is not to be them. My existence is to be me. Mm -hmm. Very eloquent. One thing that we all have had as a challenge, as a collective challenge, has been uh, this past year, uh, COVID-19. Uh, I'm curious, how is that? <laughs> Hopefully in a few years, uh, the young people won't know what we're talking about. <laughs> um, has it impacted your work? Um, have you been able to continue your work? So... Um... Oh, I've got uh, the drama in my life just doesn't really end. So um, my funding uh, for my PhD uh, ended in February 2020, uh, oh. which is the month before the lockdown impacted people in the UK. My I actually contracted coronavirus in March 2020 at the end of February, and it triggered long COVID for me. Uh, it, it reignited an immune condition I have which meant that um, I was really unable to function for a few months. Like I was able to, you know, get out of bed, but I suffered from like, you know, lethargy and I was really nauseous at times. And that's not really good for uh, trying to finish a PhD. Um, on top of that, I was living with my um, extremely clinically vulnerable mother. So I became a primary carer for her too. And um, we ended up not really having much money and I wasn't really in a position to either get a job or, or really do much. So um, the year was actually particularly quite tough on, on, on the family. Um, but, you know, she persisted and that's what you have to do. You have to ask for help. Uh, the university was supportive in terms of accommodating extensions on my PhD just because I was just not able to do it. Um, I was, e I was also able to, uh, kind of provide the care and support for my mum and my wider family. And I'm here in front of you today speaking. So, uh, I, I just want to be able to share that. Yeah, it has been tough for everyone. And I bet it's been really tough for even more people, especially those who unfortunately have lost people and weren't able to express their love, uh, directly with them. 
um, I feel for you. And hopefully looking forward, we can try and help build this better world. So no one has to go through the stuff that we've been through over the last year or two. Um, and so, yeah, just reach out and, and there will always be an arm reaching back. That's one of the worst um, uh, stories I've heard so far. And yet you, you say it with a smile. And um, I think that's a testament to your resiliency. Um, wow. And I can imagine trying to pour over pages of code and, and uh, data while you're nauseous. Um, I get car just, just taking the bus. So I can imagine how difficult it would have been to finish your PhD. Well, I'm still finishing it. So give me seven weeks and I'll, I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> um, now you've spoken so, uh, again, eloquently about the work that you do. Um, hopefully you're inspiring some people to follow in your footsteps. What, uh, background or courses would you recommend, uh, for students who are thinking of following you? Okay. So, uh, spoiler alert, I have tried to not speak about the explicit aspects of my research too much because I don't want to, um, I don't want to bore people. Maybe that's the imposter syndrome talking, but also um, I want people to see that there are so many different routes into doing whatever you want to do. You know, my job here isn't to, to, to talk about climate change. It's here to be like, do you know what? You can do anything. So when it comes to courses, I think especially in traditionally associated academic disciplines, it's easy to undervalue and overlook soft skill development. Um, I would encourage anyone, especially if you are intimidated or insecure about your own kind of skill sets when it comes to interacting with people, communicating, um, working in groups, uh, developing business cases. I mean, again, remember, business cases, yeah, sure, they were, they were established by the devil. And uh, I know uh, a few other kind of demons worked on making them really tedious, but if you can understand how to present cases and convince people that a solution is, is net positive to everyone with a heavy amount of caveats of ethics and compliance and social justice, uh, you can implement a solution. So if anyone listening, try and learn the skills to help you convince people that this needs to be done um, and this will improve people's lives. And, you know, forget about the profits, just think about how can you help and enrich other people around you in your community and in your wider community. That's how we spread the love and how we can make everyone have a better world. So, yeah, think about those skills that enable you to do that. That's what I would recommend. So much wonderful research uh, gets ignored because it's uh, poorly communicated or uh, it's not explained in a way um, or it's not explained how people or why people should care about it <laughs> yeah 100 percent. and uh, if you can understand the kind of um the motivation like everyone had a motivation to do something if you can okay. communicate that and someone else even just one person can 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 reflect and, and adopt that motivation into them as a driver then you are achieving what your research is set out to do and that is to show people hopefully tautologically, you know, taking them by the hand and saying, look, this is what I see. And uh, it leads to this kind of conclusion, which I think we can all agree is good for everyone. Let's try and spend some time doing it. Speaking of motivation, uh, did you have anyone who was motivating you while you were studying and going through all this? Oh, do you mean like, um, uh, this is going to be one, uh, this is going to be another kind of sideball. Um, 
I draw a lot of inspiration from, and this is probably explains a lot as to who I am. Uh, growing up, I there was a, an incredible American um, civil rights activist called Fannie Lou Hamer, and cool. she was uh, she was a black woman in the Deep South during the 1960s, and she wanted to exercise her right to vote. And the people stopped her and they beat her and they abused her. Like the state authorities did this. And with her resilience and strength and the people around her who many, you know, many people during that period of time, they continued to fight and they testified on national TV about their lived experience. And they showed everyone what really happened to the black community in America in particular during that time. And it was just to exercise their rights as a human. And so in spite of all of the bullying and the harassment and the death threats, Fanny still spoke. She stood up for what she believed in and what she knew would empower everyone else to. And when I'm having a crap day, I think, do you know what? People have been through worse. And if, if Fanny can do it, I can do it, you know? Wonderful. I've never heard of her, but I'll have to look her up afterward. <laughs> now, you're uh, at the beginning of your career. Um, I, I want to take you to the end of your career. Let's look forward. Um, what do you want to be your legacy when you retire? Or what do you want to be written on your career's tombstone? Um, okay, so the cheeky, the cheeky one is, um, I like, uh, as I'm sure like any other academic, I like to be right. So um, I'd love ah, yeah, you're right on my tombstone because I love hearing that. Um, <laughs> I guess the legacy would be, so the, again, to, to every all your listeners, um, the climate change area is di dynamic. It's very dynamic in terms of atmospheric sciences, particularly with advancements in modeling. So there isn't too much of a, of a like kind of a, concrete idea of what could come out of that because the whole point is to inform decisions uh, and the same thing with the power system i am what i'm 30 now i hope to live into my 90s you know god willing um so in 60 years time what is what is the world going to look like um and that's how much i that's my long-term plan my i always think where do i want to be when i retire where do i want to be when i when I'm old and I want to have a lot of family around me, a lot of friends around me, who knows what the power system will look like, who knows what the economic system will look like. But um, I would consider my legacy to have, to be having a lot of good people around me and we uh, people willing to consult and ask for my advice. So I would love that to be my legacy. Um, people to value the judgment I worked hard to create and share with others and collaborate with. Um, yeah, so those connections, those connections I've had with people and the connections that are spurred on because of them, I want that to be my legacy. Wonderful. And I mean, yeah, hopefully people are already consulting with you and um, yeah, <laughs> trusting you. I love uh, I love just speaking to an hour for someone on the phone. I'm like, hey, so what's going on in your life? And they're like, really Dan so heavy and I'm like yeah it's fine you know we can do it another thing looking toward the uh, your future um I find that with most careers most fields are changing very very quickly and the field that you enter at the beginning of your career can be very very different from the field uh that, that you retire from um 
things are changing at, at light speed. So what kinds of changes do you see happening in your field? And what advice do you have for young people to anticipate those changes? Okay, that's a really good question. I like that. Um, I liked all the questions, disclaimer. In the last 60 years, the economy in the world has developed incredibly like incredibly so. Um, 60 years ago, China was still kind of a, a growing economy. Um, the USSR was still around and the world was divided by really different concepts of how to solve problems. Now we have got a situation where people are beginning to work together more. We are more connected. We are beginning to understand and revisit the that our shared histories and, and shared the creation of science too. So building off of that kind of trajectory into the future, I would say it's really important to continue the development of mutual understanding and collaboration between people. Um, a lot of the, I believe there's going to be a lot of growth in, in parts of the world where there haven't been over the last 60 years. So and if there and and there hasn't been, so we should be fighting hard for people. If they want to have the technology that we've been enjoying and developing, we should be working hard to make sure it's accessible to them. So over the next 60 years and into the future, I want to see greater access for not just technology, but understanding science, be part of that transition. How can we help others who have been underrepresented in our kind of field gain those skill sets themselves? For instance, in atmospheric science, there's still quite a low fidelity of different atmospheric mechanisms in certain regions of the world. Okay, guys, we've got 20 years, if not more. Let's try and work on improving uh, model, the mod modeling precipitation in sub-Saharan Africa, for instance. You know, let's work hard on trying to understand solar radiance resources in Latin America. Um, we have those technologies, and if we want to, we can invest in a very clear process of co-creating that understanding with institutions everywhere. Um, so for the, for the, for the, what would I love to do that I haven't been able to do that I wish others could do, just get out there and, and meet people and work with them. Don't be afraid. Just, just go out there, get onto your undergraduate courses, never let go of those dreams and think about how you can work with others in particular, working with others to help realize those dreams. Um, and I think you would find a lot of, uh, a lot of fun and a lot of joy and a lot of merriment in, in doing it that way, rather than staying in an ivory tower. Wonderful. Uh, you take um, a holistic perspective to a global level. <laughs> That's amazing. Dan, those are all the questions I have for today. Uh, do you have anything else you'd like to say? Did I miss anything? I've uh, enjoyed this. I feel like I've talking, uh, spoken. Ugh, I've talked a lot, so um, I don't know how much uh, how how much trouble it's going to be editing it into a coherent narrative. Um, in terms of any other messages, I just think um, we need to be we need to not segment ourselves and uh, assume that there is a academic world and there is a human world and there's a lay person's world and there's a professional world we're all human and we should yeah. act and treat each other as humans and if we all did that i think we would all have a better understanding of each other and we would all have just a much more uh, easier life 
You're a scientist and a philosopher and an incredibly eloquent speaker. In, in terms of the science, it's uh, it's all there. There are people who have done it better than I have. There are people who have who have uh, who have uh, really contributed more in any way that I could in, in you know in each discipline. But the value that I try and bring is connecting them together. The value that I see that often people overlook or think is too difficult to real to realize is is joining up those dots and and helping the climate scientist re and you know enable them to show their research that something will change to a power systems modeler and they can then interpret that to an energy policy expert who can then inform the decision makers. That's the real value in the work I do and. I don't do it perfectly, but do you know what? Even if I get it wrong, at least the door is a bit wider for other people to enter. And that's, the, and that's what I see as the value and the love that's in academia. No one does anything perfectly, but you can't let that stop you. Otherwise, nothing gets done. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. I've absolutely loved getting to know you today. Um, and I hope, uh, yeah, good luck with your, with your defense <laughs> in a few weeks. <laughs> Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen on Spotify Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.